Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Hey, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to think about, I want you to think about a time in your life. This probably won't be very hard for most of us. Think about a time in your life when you made a bad decision. Okay? Got one? Think about a time in your life when you made a bad decision. Maybe you made a bad dating decision. Anyone ever do that? Bunch of dating girls at my gym, and all I hear when I go in in the morning is about all their bad dating decisions. So that's going around, apparently. Uh, so maybe you've, you've had that. Maybe you, maybe you made the bad decision to send like an emotional email to someone probably late at night, and you're like, whew, I would love to have a get back feature. That'd be awesome. Maybe you've made a, uh, a bad job decision and then found yourself working in a toxic environment or doing something that you absolutely hated. Maybe you made a bad financial decision that left you broke on the other side of it. So think about a time in your life when you made a bad decision. Now, when I think about bad decisions, I tend to think about really most of my 20s. Uh, when I reflect on my 20s, especially the first half before I married Tammy and she fixed a lot of that, um, I just feel like it was one string, long string of bad decisions. And you, you pick it, like dating, relationships, job, church, finances, you name it, I probably made a bad decision in it. I even made a bad decision for me and Tammy's honeymoon. I told her I was going to talk about this and she very graciously was like, well, didn't we kind of both decide that? The problem is I distinctly remember calling her a few months before our wedding and saying, I have a great idea, which is how the vast majority of my bad ideas have actually started. And so if you're wondering, like, how could anyone make a bad decision with their, it just does this sometimes, Jesus is not returning in this moment, because it kind of feels like the rapture is happening every time that happens. So, so, uh, here's what happened is that there was really two big things. The, the first thing is, um, I booked us our honeymoon, I booked our, uh, us at a sandals resort. Now, I don't, I don't know, like I can't speak to the entirety of their properties, but I gotta say the one I chose was a dog, okay? It was not great. Um, I didn't ask anyone for advice. I didn't read a single review. I just looked at the pictures on their website, which is maybe the dumbest way to, because I, I mean, you, like if you've ever looked at homes or anything, like you, you, they can make meth labs look attractive on the internet. like. It was just not a good way. But the second problem was I booked in Jamaica during hurricane season, which means that we got to spend a good two days huddled up with sweaty strangers in a hotel lobby, eating so much jerk chicken, I still gag thinking about it 16 years later. And uh, all of that was while we waited for this hurricane to just pound the island. I mean, the food, I'm not, I'm not joking, like, the food was so bad that when Tam and I landed back at the airport, there was a Sabaro's. And you would have thought it was a Michelin star restaurant. We were so excited. And it's like mediocre pizza at best, but we were pumped. So that was just one of many bad decisions in my 20s. But you know, the Bible, the Bible uses a much more precise word to describe what we would call bad decisions. The Bible uses the word foolish. Now to be foolish means to lack sense. 
And one expression of foolishness would be making decisions that hurt ourselves or that hurt other people in some way. Now, contrary to foolishness, the Bible praises the virtue of wisdom. So much so that Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Wisdom is supreme, so get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get understanding. Now, wisdom... uh, is much more than just intelligence, okay? It's not about being smart, necessarily. And and contrary to what we often think and contrary to what we often hear, uh, wisdom is not necessarily an immediate byproduct of age. We tend to think, well, people who are, are older are just naturally wiser. That's not true. I mean, it can be absolutely true, but sometimes it's not. We all know some foolish 70, 80, 90-year-old people that you're like, whew, you didn't grow out of that yet, huh? So it's not an immediate byproduct of age. It's a specific skill that has to be developed. And so as we continue our series, Fiercely Feminine, examining the lives of these often underappreciated and overlooked women in Scripture, I find it interesting that when the book of Proverbs personifies wisdom, that Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman. Furthermore, the woman that we're going to spend some time with this morning today exemplified wisdom in a few important ways. And so if you have a Bible with you, uh, do me a favor and open up to the Old Testament book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Old Testament, so it's Genesis, Exodus. Just go to chapter 2, that's where we're going to start. And this morning I want to talk about Miriam the wise. Now while you're finding Exodus, let me give you a little bit of context and setting for what is happening here. Um, If you don't know, there is a 400-year gap in time between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. So Genesis, uh, if you're familiar with that book, you know that it ends with Joseph and his family firmly rooted in a place of prominence in Egypt. So Joseph is second in command in all of Egypt when Genesis ends. And by by the time we get to the beginning of Exodus, God has grown this one family into a massive nation. But after all those years, again, 400 years, the new Pharaoh that's in place at the beginning of Exodus, man, he doesn't know anything about Joseph. All he sees when he looks at his kingdom is this growing number of people that day by day, he's looking around going, God, there's just more. These people are just like rabbits, man. There's like so many of them now. And he begins to have this very visceral fear that one day they will rise up against Egypt. And so what he does is he comes up with a plan to control them. And his plan A for controlling them was to force them into oppressive labor, to make them slaves. And so what Pharaoh quickly realizes is that the more pressure he puts on them and the harder that he works them, the more quickly they seem to continue to grow. So plan A fails horribly for Pharaoh. So he immediately moves to plan B, which was genocide. Pharaoh tells the Hebrew midwives to observe the gender of every baby born. And if the baby born is a female, she can live. But if the the baby born was a male, they were to kill the child. And so These first two chapters of Exodus are actually filled with amazing women. It's not just Miriam, though she is a very central figure. But, you know, two of these Hebrew midwives are actually named in Exodus chapter 1, Shifra and Puah. 
And so Exodus chapter one tells us these women feared God. And so rather than kill these babies as Pharaoh had commanded, they simply tell Pharaoh that the Hebrew women are far more, quote, vigorous than the Egyptian women when they give birth. And he tells Pharaoh, man, these these women are so tough. They basically self-deliver before we can even get there. And all of that was because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And so God blesses them. And again, this Hebrew nation continues to grow. And so since both Pharaoh's plans have failed at this point, he moves to plan C. Pharaoh commanded all the Egyptian people to throw every male born son into the Nile River. And so Exodus opens with Israel in an exceptionally dark, traumatic, and hopeless season, which just so happens to be the perfect stage from which God can demonstrate his care and power. So look with me at Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is where we start. It says, Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. All right, so Exodus chapter 6 verse 20 tells us that the man and the woman who are mentioned here in the beginning of Exodus 2 is a man named Amram and then his wife, Jochebed. Now, we opened this story with Jochebed giving birth to a son. So I want you to just pause here for a moment in the, mid, in the beginning of this story, and I want you to consider how terrifying of a situation it was to be pregnant at this time. Just think about how scary that would be, specifically as a Hebrew woman. I mean, it was already a time of much more primitive medicine compared to our own. So childbirth was dangerous in general. But in addition to that, the moment that Jochebed conceives, she knows there is a 50-50 chance that the baby inside of her would be torn from her womb and thrown in to the Nile. So just imagine the confusing collision of emotions that she must have felt when she gave birth to this boy. On the one hand, you have to think that she feels immense delight Because the baby is beautiful, according to verse 2, which speaks to much more than just his appearance. Every mom thinks their baby is beautiful, even if it looks like a lizard. So it's it's not just that. The Hebrew word from which we translate this term beautiful speaks to his health, and specifically, Jochebed's sense that he was destined for something unique. So on the one hand, She feels this elation, this delight, and oh my gosh, look at what God has given me. But on the other, there is this terror present in the reality that if anyone sees this baby boy, he is going to be thrown into the crocodile-infested Nile River. And so Jochebed, yet another obviously strong woman here in Exodus, comes up with a plan. After successfully hiding him for three months, it becomes apparent that's not a long-term option. And so Jochebed builds a small boat. Now in Hebrew, the word that we translate as basket is the same word used to describe the Ark of Genesis. And so she puts this baby into this boat and then places this boat in a visible spot among the reeds on the Nile. 
And it would seem that she does this in hopes that someone would in fact find the boat, see the baby, and show mercy. Now additionally, we saw there at the very end that Jochebed also instructs their oldest daughter, Miriam, to watch over him. Now Miriam, if you're not familiar with her, she plays a very prominent role throughout the Exodus story, and it all starts right here in the very beginning. Her name, I love this, her name means rebellion. And the reason that that's awesome is that she was going to be responsible for helping to lead one. And at this point, Miriam is again probably only 14 or 15 years old. And so just think about, think about the weight of responsibility that she carries on her shoulders in this moment. Now, Jochebed may have had a very clear plan and a specific hope for what happened here. Or maybe Jochebed had no real plan other than some amount of hope that somehow God would miraculously save this baby boy from his apparent fate. But regardless, the situation that Miriam is placed in is going to demand immense wisdom from her. And thankfully, both here in Exodus 2 and throughout her life, as we'll see, she embodies this very virtue of wisdom. And so I want you to make a note of a few few, few ways in which Miriam displays wisdom throughout her life. And the first one starts right here. Number one is this. Miriam possessed wisdom to know when and how to act. Miriam possessed wisdom to know when and how to act. Look at verse 5. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. All right, so just try to appreciate the pressure of this moment. Miriam has been standing off at a distance, keeping an eye on this boat that holds her baby brother when Pharaoh's own daughter approaches to bathe with her servants. Now again, this might have been the plan. The text doesn't tell us. We don't know, but this could have been Jochebed's plan. Maybe they knew that Pharaoh's daughter came and bathed in this spot at this time every single day, and for some reason they believed she would show mercy. But I got to tell you, like, even if that's the plan, doesn't that seem like a Vegas-sized gamble? I mean, they are counting on the daughter of the guy who, who ordered the genocide to show mercy, to go against her father, to defy her father, and that seems like a risky bet at best. Regardless, Miriam is experiencing a highly pressurized moment. So... Pharaoh's daughter finds this boat with the baby inside of it. And then she's faced with like, does she just let things play out and hope for the best? Does she like run up and snatch her baby brother and run away? Does she engage in some way? If she engages, how does she approach this woman? What does she say? How does she say it? These are all the questions that wisdom asks. So she has to discern all of this in like a moment. And so she's in this very pressurized circumstance. 
And so I wonder if you, like when you think about your life, again, maybe it's not gonna be of this size and scale, but, but think about a time when you've been in a highly pressurized moment. Now they're not all life and death like this one. Sometimes it can just be as simple as an encounter with someone that is important to you or, or an important encounter of some kind. I had one of these, like just after we planted our first church, Redemption in Chicago, I was at a conference for pastors and I was young, painfully insecure and working real hard to hide it. I hadn't been to seminary. I'd never taken a preaching class. I really didn't know what I was doing. I was like just largely working off my gut. And as a result, I was living with a lot of fear of failure and some serious imposter syndrome. And so one afternoon at this conference, I was walking around between sessions when across the room, I saw the director of the network that we were in talking to a couple of other speakers at the conference. And I, I, the network had been a big blessing to me, and so I just really wanted an opportunity to tell him that, that I had appreciated them so much. And so I remember walking across this giant room and getting more and more anxious with every step. And so I, I kind of had this inner dialogue going on that we all have. It's like, you need to lock it down. You need to get it together. You're going to be okay. We're going to keep it simple. You're going to say your name, because I didn't want to forget that. You're going to tell him that you're not a stalker, that you're in his network, and you're going to say you appreciated, and that's it, okay? That was like so simple. Anyone could do this. So I get across the room, and I'm just standing like this in front of these three guys, putting out some pretty awkward vibes. <laughs> because uh, I, didn't want, I didn't want to interrupt them and be rude, so I just kind of stood there, and I know I was being awkward because all of a sudden, uh, they looked at me, all three of them. <laughs> And, and so I, I looked at them, and uh, they looked at me, and I stared at them, and then they, they looked at each other, and without a word exchanged, all walked away, and left me standing in a puddle of shame. <laughs> it was not, not my finest hour, and so... <laughs> My point, my point is just like we don't always get pressurized moments right. Like sometimes, oftentimes, it just doesn't go well for us. But Miriam has so much more presence of mind in a far more pressurized situation. She knows exactly when and how to act. And this is something that we can learn from. See, I think wisdom is so much about asking and answering the right questions. And so when we find ourselves in varying degrees of pressurized situations, here is a critical question for us to wrestle with. It's a wisdom question. It's this, does this action I'm about to take have the highest probability of producing the best outcome? Even taking a moment to consider that question might save us some, from some very bad decisions. Does this action I'm about to take have the highest probability of producing the best outcome. Miriam approaches at just the right time and in just the right way with just the right question. And we know this because of how Pharaoh's daughter responds. Look at verse 8. Or, I'm sorry, let's go to verse 7. Uh, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? And Pharaoh's daughter responds, go. 
So the girl went and called the boy's mother, and then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So just think about how crazy this turn of events is. Because Miriam acted with wisdom, the daughter of the man who declared the genocide chooses to save this baby. And furthermore, the very child doomed to death by Pharaoh would lead to his undoing. And so not only does Jochebed now get to have Moses back as her own for a few years, but Pharaoh's daughter agrees to pay her to raise her own son. I would have loved that option as a parent. How amazing would that have been if the doctor was like, hey, in addition to taking Ava home, we want to pay you to raise her. Done. That's a great deal. But all of this, all of this could have been undone had Miriam acted unwisely. All it took was the wrong timing, the wrong thing said in the wrong way, and it would have undone the whole thing. Thankfully, Miriam possessed wisdom to know when and how to act. And that's not all. Number two is this. Miriam possessed wisdom to listen for God's voice. Miriam produced wisdom to listen for God's voice. After this situation and story in Exodus chapter 2, we actually don't hear about Miriam again until years later. Just after Israel has left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and seen their oppressor Pharaoh destroyed. Just after this miraculous event, in Exodus chapter 15, 20 to 21, we read this. Then the prophetess Miriam, that's a really important detail. Then the prophetess Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women came out following her with tambourine and dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord. For he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. So, I don't know if you caught this, but we just learned two more very important details about Miriam. Number one, she was a prophetess. And number two, is that God recorded her song in Scripture. So what these two things mean is that God spoke to the people of Israel through her. And he used her to help write scripture. That's a pretty amazing resume. Now, I'm, I'm not a prophet, and scripture's already written, so God's not going to be using me in that capacity. But here's what I do know about being a prophet. You have to be willing to listen to God. In fact, I'd argue that listening to God is the primary posture from which we learn to live wisely. And, and, and listening to God is essential for following him. The problem is, listening is hard, right? It's not easy for us to listen. We tend to prefer talking over listening. And even when we're not talking, we struggle to listen. We're busy and often rushing from one thing to the next. And so it's hard for us because we're also bombarded by near constant information. It's hard for us to just sit and to be present in a place with a person. And not only does that affect our relationships with one another, it hurts our relationship with God. But you know, the good news is, even in those seasons that we walk through where it feels like God is silent, God is always speaking. 
In the most obvious and overt sense, God speaks to us through his word. But he also speaks to us through one another. He speaks to us out of silence. He speaks to us through creation. God is always speaking. The question is, are we listening? And so while you and I may not be prophets in the way that Miriam was, we can all learn to slow down and to tune our ears to listen to God. Miriam possessed wisdom to listen for God's voice. And then thirdly is this, Miriam produced wisdom to lead those in her care. Miriam possessed wisdom to lead those in her care. Now, if you are familiar with the Exodus story, you know it is, it is unquestionable that Moses is the central human character in Exodus, right? And that God obviously chose to use him in a unique and powerful manner. But because of this, and honestly because of how many bad Moses movies have been made, we, we sometimes picture Moses as this sort of lone wolf leader of Israel. It's just him up on the mountain by himself leading this nation forward. But the truth is he wasn't. In Micah chapter 6, verse 4, small Old Testament prophetic book, God says this. He says, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. And then listen to this part. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. So this one verse teaches us an important truth that we are prone to miss. Israel was not led by Moses alone. They were also led by Aaron and Miriam. And so out of the thousands of people that made up the nation of Israel at this time, Miriam is one of three people that God chose to lead them through. So is it just me or is that detail not pretty problematic to any perception that says that God only ever leads people through men. Like, that's not true now. It wasn't even true then. But uh, there are entire massive streams of faith that believe, man, God, God only leads through men. Well, Miriam's a pretty big problem for that. Because it's evident in Scripture that God called, equipped, and empowered Miriam to be a central source of leadership for his people. And as is always the case in leadership, it would have required immense wisdom. And so here's what I know. While God may not have called any of us to be part of leading a nation like Miriam, he has put people in our care. All of us have people in our care. It could be our kids, it could be friends, it could be employees or coworkers or students. God has put people in our care, which means we all need wisdom to lead. And because of this, I find that one of the verses I go back to week by week most frequently is James chapter 1 verse 5. I find it to be one of the most encouraging promises in scripture because James writes this, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. Just think about the significance of this promise. If you lack wisdom, okay, you have a situation, you're like, I don't know what I should do. The remedy James says, is ask God for wisdom. And notice that God's not like stingy with wisdom. He gives generously. He's waiting to be asked, and it will be given to you. 
And so maybe you're in a situation right now that you're not sure what to do with. Maybe it's a family situation, something with school, work, some other relationship. Maybe you feel confused and uncertain about what to do. And if so, step one is ask God in faith to give you the wisdom to make the best decision that has the highest probability of producing the best outcome. Now, when I think about the life and the example of Miriam, here's the lesson that I walk away with regarding wisdom. It's our big idea. Wisdom is the art of living in a way that leads to flourishing. Wisdom is the art of living in a way that leads to flourishing. And so as we close this morning, here's what I want to stress. One of the greatest needs present among the people of God right now in this season that we are in is wisdom. We live in complicated times. Amen? Like it's complicated to be a human right now. And even more so, it's very complicated to be a Christian. There are so many social, political, relational, emotional complexities in our lives that we have an immense need for wisdom. We need wisdom for how to think about so many problematic realities in our culture. We need wisdom for how to carry ourselves in a way that further brings Christ's kingdom in our lives. We need wisdom for the day-to-day challenges that we face with family members and friends and spouses and kids and bosses and coworkers and classmates. We are in desperate need of learning how to live in a way that leads to flourishing. And so the gift that we have this morning is the example of Miriam. And so let's follow her example. Let's ask God for wisdom. Let's learn to ask better questions and thus make better decisions and live in a way that leads to flourishing. Let's pray together now and ask God for that very wisdom that we need. Will you bow your head with me? Father, we thank you that you are an infinitely wise God. We thank you that there is no situation in this world nor in our lives in which you ever look at with any amount of confusion. There's never been anything in this world that you have looked at with uncertainty. There's nothing that has ever baffled you or stumped you or caused you worry or anxiety due to not knowing what needed to happen. And in addition to that, we thank you that you are a God who desires to give wisdom generously to your people. And so in faith this morning, Lord, we ask for that. Lord, you know everything that we're up against. You know the things that are going to come up this week that are going to demand wisdom from us, that that we're not going to be certain what to do with. So Lord, I pray that you would give that to us in our time of need. And Jesus, we thank you for your perfect example of a life lived wisely. And we thank you, Lord, that you gave your life in our place for our failures, many of which are a a severe lack of wisdom. And we thank you, Lord, that in your rising again and taking back the life that you laid down on our behalf, that you have made it possible for us to live reconciled in relationship with you, to hear your voice, to glean from your wisdom 
And so Jesus, we want to live with you. And I, I just pray, Lord, if there's anyone listening who doesn't know you and is not walking with you, Lord, would you awaken their heart to faith? Would they give their lives to you and live surrendered to who you are and all you've called them to? Lord, we desperately need you. Thank you for making yourself accessible to us. In Jesus' name, amen.